You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, so just to recap from our discussion this morning for those that end up listening to the podcast that aren't here today, some of the things that we're thinking about intentionally over the next couple of weeks, what is racism, um, keeping our ears open uh, to some of the exposure that we see around us that indicates some racial tension uh, in the midst of people that we work with, people that we're friends with, our family members. Um, also, kind of thinking through um, what, um, what benefits there are to distinguishing race, race and ethnicity. As Yvonne said, even more importantly, maybe the cultural differences um, that we see. But then something that maybe we'll, we'll discuss as well over the next couple of weeks that I've, I was thinking about even in studying, um, even some of the ways that we talk about people groups in the Bible, we wouldn't even entertain the idea of racial uh, inappropriate type talk because we don't consider any of those people to still be around. But I was even thinking through some of the language and some of the the type of things that we would say about the Canaanite people, the Babylonian people. Um, if we had Canaanites or Babylonians in our in our midst, uh, would probably steer clear of saying some of the things that, that we would say about them. So I'm even kind of thinking through uh, are some of the things that we say about people groups in, in Scripture appropriate and how we talk to our kids even about those, those groups of people? Is it okay because God says some of those things about those people? Um, so just a lot of things for us to think through and consider um, over the next couple of weeks, and I, and I hope it'll be of benefit to you. I hope it'll uh, challenge you in your own perspectives about how you treat uh, those around you. In Genesis chapter 9, we turn our attention to verse 18, Coming out of the flood, uh, mankind has established his presence once again on the earth. And it says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now that's significant. You're going to see Ham tied to Canaan uh, several times here in this passage. Ultimately, it sets the stage uh, for Canaan and the curse that he uh, receives because of Ham's actions. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Again, that gives uh, inclination to us that everyone was wiped out except for Noah's family. It wasn't a localized flood. It was a global flood because all of the nations that we understand today flow from Noah's sons. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It's important to be reminded that in Romans 15, 4, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, both those passages talk about 
things of old being written for our instruction. So once again, we approach this passage, um, and we want to be instructed. Uh, We want to be encouraged. We want to be convicted and reminded of things uh, so that we don't make the same mistakes in our day and age. And so uh, we approach this passage recognizing that it's been included here for us, for our encouragement, for our admonition. Um, I've been challenged recently in in an article I was reading that if you can't say your sermon in a sentence, then you probably can't say it in an hour. I don't know how true that is, but um, it got me thinking that it would be helpful potentially to try to summarize, starting this week, try to summarize every week where we're going at the very beginning, and then allow everything that I say in the next 45 minutes to an hour to build off of that statement. So I'm going to try to tweak that into my sermon notes moving forward. I want to give you a summary sentence uh, that, that kind of gives you an idea, the main point of what we're trying to discuss today, the main thing that I want you to leave with this week. And then I want to build and expand off of that idea um, moving forward with the rest of the time that we have together. So our summary sentence for this week, um, the main idea, what I want you to grasp, and then to help you grasp that, I want to build off of that with our sermon today. Um, It's a little lengthy because I've got to get a whole sermon in a sentence. So um, we'll probably see a lot of compound sentences. today being one of those. So the main summary sentence, an individual's value, an individual's value and deserved treatment, an individual's value and deserved treatment is based upon the image of God rather than the image of his ancestor. So an individual's value and deserved treatment is based upon the image of God rather than the image of his ancestor. With the moral character of an individual defining him. with the moral character of an individual defining him rather than his ethnic descent. An individual's value and deserved treatment is based upon the image of God rather than the image of his ancestor. With the moral character of an individual defining him rather than his ethnic descent. I think grasping that concept eliminates a lot of racial issues. If, if we determine that an individual's value and how that person is to be treated, it's based ultimately on the image of God versus the image of his ancestor. Okay, so we're going to see that uh, Japheth and Shem and Ham, who they are in some ways defines uh, the, the, their descendants as a whole. There's some, there's some continuity, there's some uh, carryover from how they act into how we see some of their descendants acting as a whole, a generalization. But with all generalizations, there are exceptions. And so ultimately, we don't, we don't value somebody, we don't treat somebody based on one of their ancestors. Okay, so we don't tie an individual's 
uh, value and treatment back to whether they came from Shem and Japheth or whether they came from Ham. We, we, don't, we don't determine someone's value or how we're going to treat them based on their ancestor. Nor should we allow someone's ethnic descent to define them. Instead, we want to see that moral character should define who someone is. Okay, so for Noah, the scriptures do not tell us what color his skin was. Instead, we're told he was a preacher of righteousness, right? His, his moral character, his decision-making is ultimately what defines Noah. When we look at Hebrews chapter 11, there's no skin color mentioned, right? It's all about their expression of faith, their decisions, their choices, their submission to God, and what he had revealed to them ultimately defined them, okay? So, Uh, As we move through this discussion on race, we're going to keep coming back to this idea that someone's value and how we treat them is tied to their, uh, their connection with God's image, not some image of an ancestor that would warrant us devaluing them or treating them differently than someone else. And then ultimately, we want... Uh, anyone who walks through the doors of our church to be defined by their moral character and not the color of their skin, not their ethnic descent. Same should be true for family members. Uh, A family member brings somebody home that they're dating. Uh, Their character should define them, not their skin color. Same thing with coworkers, neighbors. Uh, it, It should be defined by who they are, the choices that they make, versus choices that were made previously by ancestors. Okay, so that's kind of the main idea uh, where we're going uh, in this passage. Setting the stage a little bit, let's be reminded that God has immensely blessed Noah and his family in coming off the ark. You'll remember that their hearts have been put to rest about future floods. God has assured them over and over abundantly that no more floods are going to wipe out the earth. Uh, their family has been blessed. Uh, the fear of man has been placed upon the animals. So if there was any fear towards the animal kingdom, that's been alleviated. Um, God has established some governmental protection in regards to the value of life. So lots of advantages that have been afforded to Noah and his family. Uh, The purpose of this passage is to show us, to reveal to us how Noah's family repopulates the earth. Uh, This is the, the founding of nations. Um, we're going to see Genesis chapter 9, then we're going to see a lot of genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, and the nations that are produced from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to see the, the Tower of Babel and how the languages gets changed. So all this section of scripture here reveals to us how Noah's family repopulated the earth, how nations were founded. Um, ultimately, these are nations that God uses for his purposes. When Paul talks in the book of Acts chapter 17, um, He describes God and his control over nations uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation. So while all the nations are tied to Noah's sons, they're ultimately tied to Noah. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God is sovereign over nations. He determines how long they reign. He determines how far they go in their reign. God is in control of nations. He uses them for his purposes all through the Old Testament especially. You see God picking and choosing nation after nation for his purposes. Oftentimes he uses them to rebuke Israel, to punish Israel, Israel, to discipline Israel. Oftentimes he uses Israel to bring about his glory. 
God uses nations. He functions with nations. He controls nations. He raises up kings. He tears down kings for his purposes. We see the beginning of nations here in this passage. Four points of initial application that I want to give you in reading through Genesis chapter 9 here at the very end. Four initial points of application for us, and then we'll jump into the narrative portion of this story. Number one, the inspiration of Scripture is supported by stories like this. The inspiration of Scripture is supported by stories like this. By that I mean stories that involve the fall of heroes. If Scripture was man-generated, you would find a lot of heroes without their flaws. We're very good at, at highlighting the flaws of those that we don't like, but oftentimes when we have somebody that we admire, somebody that, that we cherish, somebody that we look up to, even when flaws are exposed, we want to try to remove those, to cover those, or to explain those away. This happens a lot of times in sports. When you follow a certain team, you, you, you have a, a guy that you just really like on your team, and then you find out some skeleton in his closet, and you want to try to explain that away to your friends because your friends want to bring it up and say, oh, did you hear about him and what he did with his wife or, or what he did with his money and how he's in trouble with the law? And you want to be like, yeah, but he's misunderstood or, nah, that's not really how it went down. When all the truth comes out, he'll be cleared of it. Like, I've done that before. I've had somebody that I really liked, really valued, really looked up to. You find a flaw, and you want to try to explain it away. What you find in Scripture time and time again is that when heroes are written about, there's no glossing over their errors. There's no glossing over their flaws. They're, they're presented in the same way as their heroic feats. Again, with Noah here, the guy who is the champion of the human race, who, who God includes on the ark, he's shown to be what he is here in this account. He's shown to be what he is, and it's, an, it's a point towards the inspiration of Scripture. Secondly, our sin nature is our greatest hindrance to holiness. Our sin nature is our greatest hindrance to holiness. We've talked about this before. We are not a product of circumstances or environment. You have a man here, Noah, and his children that are living in an environment where sin has been swept clean. The flood has come in and eliminated all temptations around them from other people. Right? They're not having to worry about getting in with the wrong crowd. The environment has been swept clean. There's warning of future judgment, uh, but God has given an immense amount of blessing to these people. But what we find here with Noah and the decisions that he makes and Ham and the decisions that he makes is that the same evil that called forth God's wrath lurked inside the ark within the hearts of Noah's family. So, so sin calls God's judgment down. So, so God comes and, and he wipes out sin. He washes the world of sin. But the same very sin that he comes to punish and to wash away, it's lurking inside the ark. Uh, it, it escapes in the hearts of Noah and his family. And it looks to burst forth when they walk off the ark. Um, so what we find is that while Noah is a man of righteousness, as we've already highlighted, his righteousness is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not his own righteousness. Noah does not get to boast in heaven of his good works because as we see here, he is a flawed man just like you and me. Number three, 
The dangers of wine is seen through the additional evils it often produces. The dangers of wine is seen through the additional evils it often produces. Now, don't, don't cringe and worry and think that we're about to do a sermon against alcohol, because that's not the case, right? Like, I know we have people in our congregation that drink alcohol. That's totally fine. It's totally acceptable. We view it as a, a, a freedom in Christ that should be, that can be enjoyed by the stronger brother. Some within this church would need to refrain from it because of conscience sake, uh, but we don't speak one way or another to that issue, so don't panic and think, oh boy, um, there's something else lurking in, in, in my home that you maybe don't be aware of. I'm, I, it's, it's, we're not going to address it in that sense, okay? But what we do have to be mindful of is that Scripture does point to the dangers of wine, and so we have to be mindful of it if we're going to partake and use. In the same way, if you're going to own a gun at home, you've got to be aware that there are a lot of negatives and a lot of danger that comes with the use of a gun. So it necessitates, if you're going to use it, that you have to use a lot of precaution with it, right? You don't just flippantly carry it around. You don't use just a, a, a lazy, casual approach to it. Typically, you store it in a safe place. There, there are, are ways to handle it. There's ways not to handle it. Same thing with wine. Uh, same thing with alcohol. And, and we're exposed to some of the reason that it's dangerous here in our passage, um, other things that Scripture would highlight, we see that obviously it, it distorts, uh, this story distorts Noah's family, um, but Scripture would allude and, and, and point to the fact that alcohol has the ability to rob us of usefulness. Um, it prevents us at times from, and specifically in the area of drunkenness, it prohibits us from governing ourselves, right? Alcohol is used in Scripture to lower the... Uh, the ability to respond appropriately to circumstances. It can render us useless if we're not careful. Um, a real similar story happens later on in Genesis with Lot and his two daughters, right? Lot and his two daughters think that the, the destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah was global, right? We know it as a localized event, but they panic and say, we're the only people left, we're just like Noah and his family, except we weren't married or, or our spouses didn't come with us. It's us two and dad that's left. So what do they do? They have a conversation. Let's get dad intoxicated with alcohol so that we can make sure that the human race continues. Um, the, the, the mindset there is, is that if we can get dad full of alcohol, then he won't resist what we're trying to do here. Lowers his ability to respond. Um, we see this also with David and Uriah. Remember, David uh, has, has a desire for Bathsheba, takes Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, panics and says, okay, this is wrong. How do I clean this up? How do I fix this? Well, I'm going to bring Uriah home, but I know Uriah is a good man. He's not going to go in with his wife, so I'm going to have to give him some alcohol in hopes that that'll lower his ability to think properly and have him do something that he wouldn't normally do. Okay, so alcohol is used dangerously in that manner. We have to be mindful of that if we're going to use it, that there's some danger to it. Um, it has the ability to rob us financially. Uh, Proverbs 23, 19 through 21 uh, highlights the fact that if we're not careful, we can give much of our financial stability to something that could potentially become an addiction for us. Uh, it has the ability to distort the way we think, act, and respond. Um, Proverbs 23 Verse 31, 
Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. You see that elders are not to be men that are given to much wine. And so in the context here, a lot of these warnings are surrounding the idea of drunkenness, right? So uh, it opens up the door for drunkenness, which is where a lot of these issues flow from. So again, it's just a call to be reminded that alcohol is, is potentially dangerous, much like a gun is potentially dangerous, and yet it can be good for, used for good purposes. Um, alcohol can be used for the glory of God. Psalm 104 Verse 14 and 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Psalmist highlights the fact that God's creation is used in different ways in different manners uh, to produce good things. Uh, so alcohol can be used for good purposes. It can be uh, something that's a tool for, uh, for good purposes. It's all dependent on how it's being used. What we see in the story here in Genesis 9 is that it's used for dangerous purposes, that Moses has, or Noah has a lapse in judgment to where it, it, it grips him. The alcohol grips him, distorts his thinking, and leads to uh, the sin of others. Um, number four. We need to be watchful and prayerful lest we fall. We need to be watchful and prayerful lest we fall. What we find here is a giant in the spiritual realm, Noah. And yet we find a man who, despite all of his spiritual accolades, uh, falls prey to temptation. Uh, there's warnings throughout Scripture, Galatians 6, 1, that in, in the means of trying to encourage a brother that's in sin, that we're to be very careful lest we fall into the same sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The reminder to us here is that anyone can fall, right? None of us... Uh, progresses beyond the point where we need God's grace in our life. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when we see those around us potentially fall uh, because there's evil that still lurks within us. It reminds us that we need to constantly depend on God if we're going to withstand the solicitations of the world. Noah is a prime example. Lest any of us think in here that we've moved to a point where we are immune from catastrophic failures in regards to sin, Noah is a reminder that after hundreds, 600 plus years of living faithfully, he is not still at that point immune from falling prey to sin and temptation. It's a reminder to us that no matter how, uh, how progressive you feel like you've gone in your sanctification, that we're still all in need of God's daily grace, we're all in need of accountability and encouragement lest we fall prey to the same sins that we see around us. Um, we must guard and protect ourselves. Uh, otherwise, our fall could define us. 
Um, you know, it's interesting here in Genesis 9, not that we necessarily think about this first when we think of Noah. I mean, Noah kind of secured his place in history with the ark, but we don't get anything else about Noah after this, right? Like nothing else falls into the story. This is the last thing that we see in the narrative about him. Now, when the New Testament references him, references things that happened earlier in life, preacher of righteousness, the builder of the ark, man of faith. But he's a man who, for, for practical purposes here in the narrative, did not end well. Um, despite everything in the past, it did not guarantee, he couldn't rely on past victories to guarantee future victory. He slips and falls here. Um, and it's a reminder to us that we have to persevere every day if we're going to end well. Posted on Facebook yesterday, a man named uh, Dr. William Culberson, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute, uh, used to pray publicly, and he kind of wrapped up his prayers, and Lord, help us to end well. Help us to end well. That should be a prayer of all of us, that especially as we get older, and, and the tendency is to kind of look back and say, okay, I've done it. I've accomplished much. I've been faithful. To end well. To end well. There's been many a man who has fallen late in his life. Um, and we don't want to see that happen here within our church. So let's continue to stay conscious of the fact, be watchful and prayerful lest we fall. All right, let's get back into the narrative here. We're going to kind of work through this and build off these points that we've made. Uh, number one, Noah's lapse in judgment. Noah's lapse in judgment. These events most likely occur sometime after the flood because grandsons have been born at this point. Uh, when Noah references Canaan, Canaan is one of the younger of Ham's kids. So there are kids that have now populated the earth somewhat. And so this isn't day two of being off the flood. It wasn't day one, here's some sacrifices. Day two, I'm drunk, right? He has to cultivate. He has to build his, his winery. He has to build his, his garden and, gardens and his vineyards. Um, so this is sometime after the flood, maybe 10, 15, 20 years. We don't know. Uh, but it's not an immediate uh, event right after the flood. Um, there's some significance to this story. Uh, you know, I think Noah's identified here because it helps us to understand that Noah will produce sin despite the purification of the flood. Okay, so it's a reminder to us that, that the answer to sin's problems is not to start over with a Christian family. That we could take the best Christian family on this earth right now, take everybody else off, and we would still have sin present. The answer to man's sin problem is not really good Christians. Really good Christians still need Jesus to come back and defeat sin in their life. Noah's family is evidence of that. They're all alone on the earth, and what do they do? They produce sin. Uh, drunkenness and nakedness are often tied together. This is another warning against um, the, the abuse of alcohol. In Habakkuk 2.15, these two things go together, um, and it never typically leads to good things. Uh, Habakkuk 2.15 Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Lamentations chapter 4 verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but, you, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Okay? These two things oftentimes go together. What, what we're meaning by that is drunkenness often leads to you doing things, being a part of things that you normally would not be a part of, things that you would normally not do. Noah's an example here. Um, 
This is, this is not a good situation for him to be in. Um, obviously, poor choices have led to this. Um, ultimately, what we see here is Noah abusing the spoils of his labor. He's abusing the spoils of his labor. He's not a good steward here. Uh, he's, he kind of falls into that category that we talked about back when we talked about rest from our weekly labor. Rather than resting in God, rather than worshiping God in response to a hard uh, week of work, he indulges himself in the fruit of his labor, and it leads to sin. Uh, so instead of enjoying his Sabbath rest and allowing that to, to direct his attention and focus to the God who has provided for him all week long, he turns his attention to the fruit of his labor and excessively indulges in it. Uh, which leads us with an implication here in this section. And I think this is important to grasp because I've heard this used as an excuse uh, to, um, to allow even for a state of drunkenness. Implication, even private drunkenness does not guarantee the absence of sin. Even the, uh, the private drunkenness does not guarantee the absence of sin. I've, I've talked with young couples before that have, that have stated, you know, um, it's okay for me and my husband to drink excessive alcohol. We do it at home. We do it in the confines of our house. We've been drunk before together, and it's okay because nobody can be harmed by those actions. We confine our drunkenness to our house. We're not out driving. We're not out interacting with others. There's nothing that can go wrong here. And yet what we find here is that Noah's in his tent, supposedly by himself, indulges in alcohol, ends up drunk, passes out, and what happens? Sin. Sin happens, right? It's done in private. It's done with him thinking, nobody can be harmed by my actions here, and yet what we find is that a whole group of descendants invoke some of the responsibility here because of a man's choice to get drunk and how someone takes that act and multiplies upon it. Um, so even in private, even the things that we do in private doesn't guarantee that others are protected from our actions. Secondly, here in the narrative, we see Ham's disgraceful act. Ham's disgraceful act. All right, so uh, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of speculation about what happened here. Um, because surface value, face value here, it doesn't seem like a whole lot happened. It seems like, if you're just kind of reading through it and not really trying to go a little bit deeper, it looks like you've got a man who, uh, you know, a son who walks in on his dad, oh, oh, sorry, um, immediately goes out and tells his brothers, they come in and fix the problem, and then punishment ensues for it. Um, but when you, when you go a little bit deeper with it, I think you find that there's more going on here, more going on here than a guy who accidentally walks in on his dad um, in this condition. Um, first of all, so some things that we do know. Number one, Ham makes a mockery of Noah's nakedness. Ham makes a mockery of Noah's nakedness. Uh, what we find here is that he goes out and tells his brothers, and the language and the indication here is that he does so with malicious pleasure. He tells them with delight. Um, we don't know necessarily the motivation for why this was an appealing event to Ham to go share with someone else. Um, it may have been that 
Dad's been viewed as this spiritual giant, and now dad is messed up, and that makes all of us look better. And so let's highlight dad's fall here uh, because it makes us look better. Um, that, that's, that's one uh, notion of thinking as to why this is, is something that Ham feels compelled to announce. He could have easily covered up his dad right there, uh, but instead he feels compelled to go and to tell others. Um, the language being used here as well in the original language uh, indicates that he does not accidentally look. Instead, there's some intent gazing upon his father. Um, and, and I don't know how far that goes either. But, but the language here is not accidentally, oh, I walked in and saw my dad. Um, it was more, I, I walked in and I saw my dad and I, and I kept seeing my dad. Whether there was uh, some unnatural desire there, uh, whether there was simply some reveling again in dad's fall, this isn't an accidental gazing upon his dad. There's some intent behind here. Once it's exposed to him, it, it's, there, there's some things that continue to happen in the way that he's looking at his father. Um, nakedness was more of a shame during that time than it is today. Uh, the, the people of that time were very careful to remain covered. We live in a society where, where that's not valued as much. Right? I mean, you can pick up magazines, you watch TV and commercials, and, and it's not uncommon to see very little clothing on the people that you look at. So the idea of, of uh, the shame behind nakedness doesn't carry over as much today. Uh, but what, if anything, is indicated here is that the nakedness of someone else is not okay to look upon. That, that really flows from this passage, that, that, that uh, Ham should have been uh, a little taken back by this. Ham should have had a desire to eliminate this, to cover this, to remove this. Uh, and so it's a reminder to us that uh, that should be a value of our own personal interest, that uh, viewing someone else's body is not okay, um, that it's something that's confined to the marriage bed. It should remain in that context. It's not something that we should allow to be uh, an entertaining thing for us, right? Reading about it, watching it, uh, allowing those thoughts to be entertained in our mind, it's not okay. Uh, when, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, their nakedness is exposed and God immediately covers them. The implication is, is that it's to remain covered, that it's not to be a point of exposure to others. And, and that's kind of at the heart of what the issue is here. You know, when we talk about uh, lust and what that leads to uh, in the area of pornography, it's an attempt to uncover others. You know, and I, and I was challenging someone recently that when we fight for purity in our life, ultimately what we're fighting for is an attempt to keep others covered up in this area. So for our guys, the attempt here is that every day I, I, uh, I value the covering of other people, that I don't go seeking out an attempt to uncover others. That's what the heart here is, is that Shem and Japheth come in and they take extreme measures to make sure that they don't see anything, right? They're walking in backwards, they've got cloth and they're trying to, to figure out how to cover dad up. They don't want to look at anything here, that it's a shameful thing, that it's a disgraceful thing to look upon another who's been uncovered. Uh, it's a stark reminder to us that while our, while our culture seems to devalue this value, uh, that it's to be reinvigorated in us, that we have a responsibility to cover up others. So Ham makes a mockery of his dad's nakedness here. He goes and tells others. Uh, he ultimately fails to honor his father. Uh, there's disrespect towards Noah. 
uh, in the fact that Noah is drunk and in need of assistance, and Ham's response is, let me go tell the boys about this. Let me go tell the boys what I found. So instead of helping dad, instead of reinforcing what dad needs and covering dad up, he uses it as a point of entertainment. At the face value level, it's a point of entertainment for him. Whether he goes further into it in the ways that we described or not, dad's fallen, and I'm going to use this as a point of entertainment. I'm going to tell some other people about this. Rather than picking him up, rather than bearing the burden like Galatians would say, he uses it at a point of gossip, a point of entertainment. Let me go tell the boys what I've seen and what I've been exposed to. It's disrespect towards his dad. Number three, Shem and Japheth show great concern and care for their father. They go to great lengths to avoid seeing him. These are things that we know from, from what we can read here. The implication is, is that how people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their true character. Let me say that again. How people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their true character. So how I respond to someone else's sin and the embarrassment surrounding their sin, do I use that as a point of building myself up by sharing it with others so that others can see that so-and-so has fallen, therefore I have, have gained a notch on that person? Do I use someone's sin and the embarrassment surrounding that sin to build myself up to make myself look better? Do I use it as a point of entertainment to discuss it with others, to, to dialogue what they should have done, what they shouldn't have done? It's an indication of my true character. We see these boys' characters come out and how they handle their dad's fall. One is entertained by it. The other two go to great lengths to cover it up. Ham enjoys the sight. He revels in the embarrassment, and he tells others for entertaining purposes. Shem and Japheth demonstrate love by covering the sin. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, I've, you know, I've asked myself again the question, am I this type of person? Do I handle situations this way? Um, when, when I see others fall around me, when I see others make bad decisions around me, do I try to encourage them and help fix the problem, or am I prone to highlight the problem in the eyes of others? Do I try to make myself look like a good decision maker by highlighting the bad decisions of others, co-workers, people that I work with, people that are above me? A lot of us are in positions where we can see the flaws and errors of leadership above us. It's part of our sin problem, right? It's not a spiritual gift to be able to see the flaws and the, the, the poor choices of people above you. It's a lack of submission to authority a lot of times but we're really good at it, right? We're really good at seeing how we would do it better than someone else. Are we quick to support bad decisions and help, help compensate for the bad decision, or instead are we more the type of person that steps back and says, yep, this is what I thought would happen. 
This is exactly what I expected to happen. Remember when I was telling you that if he decided to do it this way, this is probably what would happen? Well, we're seeing that happen. Am I that type of person? Am I the type of person who wants to revel in the embarrassment of someone else, in the flaws of someone else, potentially in the sin of someone else? Or am I the type that wants to cover that up, to keep that contained? You know, we talked about in the area of church discipline. Church discipline is a progressive step, each attempt to keep it contained so that the least amount of people know. But if it's not working, if repentance is not happening, then we grow the amount of people that have to know about it. We grow the amount of people that have to know about it. But ultimately, the desire is to keep it covered, to keep it covered. So even when we talked about our church discipline issue that we're currently in right now with one of our members, we dismissed everybody that was not a member of our church. Why? Because it's not a point for visitors to know and understand what's going on within the confines of our membership. So we dismissed them. Why? To keep it covered up as much as possible. Love covers. Ham exploits it. Ham exploits it. Shem and Japheth want to come in and cover it up, want to keep it contained. There's some speculation that occurs as though further things have happened here. A lot of the speculation occurs because failure to honor father and mother is not viewed as serious. So at the basic level, Ham is guilty of not honoring his father. People want to speculate that further things happened here because honoring your father doesn't seem like it should warrant the response that Noah gives to it. We fail to remember that honor your father and mother is one of the big ones, right, in the, in the Israelite law. Um, but there's some speculation that occurs. We won't really get into it this morning, um, but it wants to delve into there being more, uh, more of a sexual nature that happens within Ham and father and potentially trying to bring Ham's mother into it. Not a whole lot of textual support for that. Um, you could look at Leviticus 18 if you wanted to to possibly see some correlation as to what it means to, to see the nakedness of a father. Um, but again, at, the, at the, the minimal reading here, what we have is a man who doesn't support his father, doesn't honor his father, and exploits his sin and embarrassment. Um, which leads us to the last point here, Noah's ethnic prediction. Noah's ethnic prediction. So we've seen some danger and harm that, that, that comes with the use of alcohol in the life of Noah. We then see an appropriate way to respond when we see others fall around us that, that we're to cover those flaws, not sweep it under the rug as though it didn't happen, but to try to deal with it internally, to try to fix it internally without exposing others to it that don't need to know. But Noah's, Noah responds to what happens here. So back in Genesis chapter 9, the boys come in and kind of fix the problem. Uh, their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his, his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Uh, there's some malediction and some benediction contained here in Noah's predictions and prophecies. Uh, a couple things to note here. Noah's prophecy is an outline of the history of nations. Noah's prophecy here, the things that he states, end up being an outline for the history of nations. History is tied to the reaction that these boys have to their father's nakedness. It's a revelation of their character, and in some senses, it, it describes 
it describes many of their descendants. Um, and there's some reasons for that. Dad teaches his kids to be like him, right? Uh, and, and those kids grow up in the context, this is how I was raised, and so they teach their kids to act a certain way. So what you see through history is that some of the character traits of these three boys get passed down to their descendants. So Noah's prophecy is an outline of some of the history of these nations that come from these three boys. All nations are traced to Noah's descendants, as we've already seen. We're all sourced in the same family. What we ultimately find here is that the source is evil, and it produces evil. So Noah and his family are still sinful. Their offspring is sinful as well. Noah's prophecy is reflective of the character of his three sons. So let's look at these three uh, these three prophecies concerning these three boys. The curse of Canaan. The curse of Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Canaan was the fourth son of Ham, the youngest of his sons listed here in Scripture. Um, the curse upon Canaan is subjection or servanthood. Really the idea of servant of servants being slavery. Ham's son Canaan is cursed to be a servant or a slave of others. At a minimum, it applies to the Canaanite people. Okay, so people want to tie in the, the African-American race, the black race to this and say, okay, this is, this is why it's okay for them to be our slaves because they're cursed to be that way. The curse, at a minimum, certainly applies to Canaan and his descendants. So we're talking about the Canaanites. That's important, and it's probably highlighted because, remember, Moses is writing to the children of Israel who are about to go into the promised land and are being asked to kill the Canaanite people. So Moses is very intentionally tying it into this story that the curse falls upon Canaan. So at a minimum, this curse is upon Canaan. Canaan, the Canaanites, were not black in skin color. Okay, so to try to tie that to that, there's, there's, there's not a lot of textual evidence for that. Now, there is the possibility that this curse extends not just to Canaan, but to all of Ham's descendants. Um, so at a minimum, it's to the Canaanite people. At a maximum, it applies to all the descendants of Ham. Why would I say that? Because there's no blessing tied to Ham's descendants. So there's a curse upon Canaan. Speculation is, is that Canaan is highlighted because it's in reference to what the Israelite people need to know. Don't just tie it into Ham's descendants, specifically Canaan. But it's possible that all of Ham's descendants experience some of this subjection because there's no blessing tied to the descendants of Ham. There's blessing to Shem, there's blessing to Japheth, but not specific blessing tied to the descendants of Ham. Um, it's not a complete curse as well. Uh, the descendants of Canaan... Uh, produce people like the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Assyrians. These are people that build world empires. So it's not, okay, everybody that comes from Canaan will always be a slave for all time. But we do see, uh, we'll actually get into this in a minute, we do see some fulfillment of this prophecy that, that the descendants of Canaan, of Canaan fall into subjection to slavery. Um, so there is some fulfillment of the curse, and yet it's not a hard, fast rule that everyone falls into this type of subjection. Uh, the blessing of Shem. So, cursed be Canaan. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So, the blessing's not specifically tied only to Shem. It's tied to the God of Shem. And what the idea here is that while 
Canaan is subjected to slavery, Shem enjoys religious preeminence. This is the covenant child that God is going to continue to reveal his people to, or, or reveal his uh, truth to. Exodus 29.45 God comes and says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Amos 3.2 talks about God knowing intentionally the people of Israel. The God of Shem is blessed. He's revealed to be the covenant child. Abraham is an... Uh, is uh, a descendant. Whoa. Uh, Abraham is a descendant uh, of Shem. Um, he's the father of the Hebrews. So what, what's being indicated here by Noah's uh, prophecy is that Shem's descendants will receive the privileges of revelation and inspiration. They're going to be the ones that end up becoming a blessing to all other nations. So Paul talks about this in Romans. He talks about the advantages of being a Jew. Right, that they get the oracles of God, that they get revelation from God. They're tied in uniquely in the Old Testament to a relationship to God that other nations don't enjoy. That prophecy flows from what Noah says here to Shem, that, that the, the God of Shem is blessed, implying that Shem will always be tied to, uh, to Yahweh, that he's tied to that God. And so we see privileges and blessings that come to Shem's descendants because of this. And then lastly, the blessing of Japheth. The, the idea here in the blessing incurred to him, Japheth's name means enlargement. And so God, the, the, the text here is kind of a play on words. It's may God enlarge the enlargement. Uh, may God actually fulfill what Japheth's name means. Let his territories be enlarged. Allow his descendants to be enlarged. Um, a lot of the dominant people groups have flowed from Japheth. Greeks, Romans, the European powers, Anglo-Saxon race. Uh, the, these are some of the big people groups that have dominated parts of history. Um, Japheth is typically referred to as the father of the Gentiles in regards to the Gentiles that are being discussed in the early church history. So when Gentiles are being saved, yes, it includes all non-Jews, but a lot of the people that we're talking about are people that flow from Japheth, which is significant because of the other part of the prophecy. May God enlarge Japheth, so great people groups are going to come from Japheth, but let him dwell in the tents of Shem. He's invited as a guest into the tents of Shem, Shem and his relationship to God. The spiritual prediction of grafting is, is portrayed here. And it's small, but the picture here is that there's spiritual blessings given to Shem that Japheth will also get to participate in. We see this expounded upon in Romans uh, 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11, when, when Israel's being talked about and the idea of being grafted in as Gentiles. This is a, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Shem gets special privileges. Japheth gets to reap the benefits of those privileges. We get grafted in that blessing. So how has this prophecy been fulfilled? A couple of ways. Uh, the descendants of Shem and Japheth historically have been stronger than Ham. Persians, Greeks, Romans. Israel directly ruled over the Canaanites. So if we're tying it specifically to Canaan, we can see some direct rule 
that Shem's descendants, Israel, had over the Canaanites. In the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. They become their slaves, essentially. In 1 Kings chapter 9, Verse 20 and 21. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves. And so they are to this day. There's some fulfillment there. Um... The Hamatic people have been subjected to a yoke of oppression and exploitation at times. When we look down through history, some of Ham's descendants have been subjected to this type of behavior, to some of this type of treatment. Um, we, we talked a little bit, does the, curse of, of the, does, does the curse of Canaan, which a lot of people want to reinterpret as the curse of Ham and apply it to all his descendants, does it directly affect the African race and how does it affect the African race? Again, the text seems to indicate that it's tied to Canaan, that the Canaanite people were going to be the ones that endured some of this. Again, I believe that it's not based on their ethnic descent as much as their own individual choices that they will make down the road as well. The Canaanite people are evil, right? We don't have any Canaanites here, so we can make that statement and not feel awkward about it. The Canaanite people overall, in a generalization, were evil, and they warranted God's judgment and punishment. They warranted some of the treatment that they get because of sinful choices that they make and God comes in to punish their sin. But, you know, in, in talking with Chris, we were talking some about Uganda and some of the, uh, the difficulties that the Ugandan people have experienced. Uh, darkness spiritually. Uh, exploitation. How much of that is tied to this? I don't know. Some of it, I believe, is tied to the fact that people have misinterpreted this and have tried to enact this curse on God's behalf. Right? When God makes predictions and God makes prophecies and, and makes statements, it's not up to man to make them happen. But many a man has abused this text and tried to exploit certain races and say, okay, this is allowed and this is right because God mandated it. And that's so far from the truth. But we also can't dismiss the fact that, that there are some of Ham's descendants that have unfortunately endured some of this type of treatment. Uh, not so much because of skin color, uh, but because of choices and decisions that have been made by people groups as a whole, potentially. And, and, and some of it could potentially be tied to this, but what's important is that none of it is warranted, none of it is warranted by individual people treating other individual people differently. And that's what I want to kind of close with with some application thoughts. First of all, God paints a picture of how he plans to treat people groups. So in this prophecy of Noah, I believe God is, is painting kind of a broad picture, a general picture. This is how people groups are going to be treated moving forward. There's going to be some intentional, spiritual interaction with Shem's descendants that the other two aren't going to enjoy the same way. Japheth's descendants, a lot of them are going to reap the benefits of these promises and privileges to Shem. But lest we think that Ham gets completely left out in the cold, we're reminded early in church history that the Ethiopian eunuch is drafted into God's people, right? 
He's reading scripture. He is supernaturally exposed to the gospel and it becomes part of God's people. So lest we think that Ham and his descendants are completely left out in the cold here, they too are grafted into God's people. So what we're saying is that God's painting kind of a broad picture. This is, is what history will show about these descendants, but it's not how man should treat individual people of those groups. Okay, so it's how God plans to treat people groups as a whole, but not how man should treat individual peoples in those groups. City of Jericho, God says, wipe it out. Hey, we're talking to Rahab, let's spare her family. There, there's, there's exceptions. There's individuals that fall into these people groups. God says, this is how these people groups will look historically but it's not how you are to treat individuals of these people groups. And that's important for us when we're talking about these issues. It goes back to that summary statement. A person's value and how they're to be treated is not tied to the fact that they came from some ancestor. They're created in the image of God. They're not defined by their ethnic descent. They're defined by their moral character and the choices that they make, not choices that someone else has made for them. Number two, the Shemites and the uh, Jephthites are not granted superiority. Nor are Hamites to be treated as inferior. Right? So this isn't a, a conditional opportunity for you to say, okay, I've traced my family history. I come from Shem or from Japheth. That means I'm awesome. And, and you're not because you didn't. It's not a license to view yourself as superior. And we kind of define that as part of the, the racial understanding that it's a, a mindset that, that one race is superior over the other. And that's not allowed here in this conversation with what Noah's saying. It's not permission, nor is it permission to view someone else as inferior. So you don't get to view yourself as superior, nor should you look down upon someone else and view them as inferior. Again, their value and their treatment is tied to them being created in the image of God not coming from the image of their ancestor. And then lastly, and what I really want us to start building off of in the coming weeks, is that the message of the gospel is the restoration of all peoples into one unified people. And that's the glory of the gospel, is that God is uniting people from all groups back to him, which for us gives value to Every single person that we come in contact with. They have value in the image of God and they have gospel value to us. We are to invest in them. Now, something that uh, Yvonne mentioned earlier, cultural distinctions will oftentimes give us insight into how the gospel is to be shared. When we think of cultural distinctions, not so much skin color, but cultural distinctions, how someone is raised, it will oftentimes indicate to us the direction and the approach that we're to take with the gospel based on what they've been exposed to, based on how they've been raised, the context of the type of religious understanding they already have. But ultimately what we see is that the gospel is a unification of all peoples into one people being grafted into God's people. So those things I want you to be thinking, thinking through as we move forward, that a lot of racial tension from a spiritual religious standpoint flows from this passage, but ultimately we see God painting a broad picture of people groups, not how man is to treat individual peoples of those groups. 
that value and treatment is tied it's tied to the image of God, not the image of an ancestor. What defines a person is not their skin color, not even the culture they come from. They are defined by the moral character, the choices that they make, and they should all be given the privilege of doing that in our, in our understanding of who they are. That preconceived judgments about somebody based on these other things is not appropriate. That who they are should be defined by the choices they make, that the life that they're living, and not where they come from. All right, let's pray, and then if you've got questions or anything, we can, we can discuss that. Father, we praise you and thank you uh, for the truth of, of what we've seen in Scripture today. We're reminded that um, even in the midst of progressive sanctification, that we never move beyond the grace that we need from you. Father, I pray that we would all be mindful that as we step out into this week, that we are all subjected to temptation, that the potential for all of us to fall exists, And yet we're grateful and thankful that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that warnings like this are are meant to keep keep us close to you as we persevere till the end. And God, we do pray that all of us would end well, that we would remain faithful, especially as we get older, Father, that we would not rely on previous victories to define us. Instead, we would keep pressing on in our usefulness towards you. Father, we pray that as we continue to work through this passage and understanding the birth of nations, that you would remove any type of prejudice feelings, any type of racial undertones that we possess personally. Father, help us to see that cultures are different, that nations are different. And there's various reasons for those differences. But value and how we treat others is tied to all of us being created in the image of God, that we all flow from the same parents. So God, help us to grasp that value as we see people this week of different ethnic descent. God, I pray that the way that we value them, the way that we interact with them, the way that we treat them would not be shaped by skin color, would not be shaped by the culture from which they come from. Instead, Father, we pray that we would see them as creations by you. Father, we pray that we would allow their their character, their life to define them and not their ethnic descent. God, help us to see that the gospel is a story where you are tearing down racial divisions, where there is no more Jew or Greek. There's one people of God. Father, we rejoice knowing that one day we will be surrounded by people from all tribes, all nations, all languages, all tongues, unified for one purpose, and that's worshiping you. So we long for that day. We look forward to that day. We pray that Christ would come soon. In the meantime, as we wait, help us to be effective in reaching the nation's freedom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.